Ruchman, our final part of the study of this brilliant letter that Paul has written to the churches that exalts Christ so highly and gives us very practical instruction. Let me move that just a bit. I don't know if that's what's causing feedback. Um, it's actually kind of hard to, to wrap it all up in one week, not just because I'm long-winded, which I know is the case, but it's because of the topics that actually come up here. In these final verses, you actually get the topic of prayer, which obviously we could spend several Sundays on. You hit the role of pastors or elders in the church, again, something that you could dive deeply into, the role of the congregation itself, the primacy of God's word in both our worship and in our lives, and most importantly, the topic of God's grace, which we would need to start in Genesis and finish in Revelation to get. So what we'll do this morning is we will just scratch the surface in some ways of just some of these topics. So it won't be comprehensive and it may leave you with some questions and that's a good thing because it's not meant to be comprehensive. But as we turn here, we want to remember why was the letter written? Because it helps us then to put these things into context that we're going to see. We have to remember the occasion is what we call that of the letter to the Colossians. And whenever we do that, we begin to see why the Bible is just as relevant to us in 2023 as it was to the Christians who received this letter in their own church in the first century. We remember that the church existed in a culture that is not unlike ours today. There is nothing new under the sun. We think that we're different, we're more advanced, but the only main difference was that they were in a cosmopolitan city, so a lot of things were available that were attacking the church and causing sin, whereas we access that on the internet. We're living in Elgin. We're not surrounded by it. But the sin list that was given to us in Colossians 3, 5, it wasn't a list of hypothetical sins. These were sins that were prevalent in the culture. It begins with sexual sins, right? Almost all of the lists do. It's just not hypothetical. The sins affect Christians. They may not affect us because we engage in them, but they affect Christians because we're drawn to approve of them. But it affects family, it affects friends, and it did for them too. The additional pressure was mounting against the church though. They had this pressure from outside. Christianity was small, and it was causing confusion among them. And they had pressure from the inside with false teaching. And so here's a congregation that was left, much like we often are today, asking, what did it take? What does it mean to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the word of God actually God's word, or can we subject it to the will of man? Can we make it mean whatever we want? And so within this church, you had two problems that arise that Paul would attack. The first problem was legalism. Right? This is distinct from obedience. We are called to obedience, but legalism is a false religious belief. You had that on one hand. And on the other hand, you had complete apathy towards sin, right? Antinomianism. It doesn't matter. It's okay. And both of those extremes have the effect of denying God's grace, his saving grace, to individuals. And so Epaphras, the pastor of the church in Colossae, decided to go to Rome. This months-long, very arduous journey so that he could seek guidance from the Apostle Paul about how to address these issues within the church. We have to remember, he didn't have a Bible to turn to. He had the Old Testament scriptures, but he didn't have what we have. And so he goes where he can go to get the Word of God from the Apostle himself. The dates, obviously, are different. But the attacks on Christ, on his Word, on his church, they're the same today. There's nothing new. And so we're going to close with three headings. They're the same three headings we read at the end of the list a couple weeks ago when we started this. We're going to hit the church and the pastor, the primacy of the word, and a message of grace. So let's read our text first. We're going to begin in verse 12, actually. We don't need to reread 10 and 11. We've covered everything there. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, 
And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, that you've preserved it throughout time, that you've delivered it to your people. Father, we pray that the Spirit would illuminate the text to our minds and our hearts, that we would be open to hearing uh, the great truths that you have given us, that you would change our lives through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have these three headings this morning. And in reality, you could take this and, and really do it under one heading. They can't really be separated because here what we begin to see is actually the very gifts, the very institutions that God has given to save his people and to sanctify his people, preparing them for all eternity. But we have to splice it up to make sense of it. And so we will. And the very first topic we're going to come to is the roles of the church and the pastor, right? And for this, the Holy Spirit has given us two men to consider. He's given us both Epaphras and Archippus. And we were introduced to Epaphras, the founder of the church in Colossae, its main pastor, its teaching elder in the terms of today, in the opening letter. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, you read that the Colossians had faith in Jesus Christ. It tells us that. And it says that they therefore lived in hope that was laid up for them in heaven. And this was a result, it says, of them hearing the word of truth, the gospel. For in the gospel, they were actually able to understand the meaning of grace. So it says that they understood in particular the grace of God in truth. Now we know who they heard the gospel from and who taught them these doctrines of grace. For the text tells us, you learned it, you Colossian Christians learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Now Paul says something in addition to this in the letter to Philemon. Philemon 23, Paul there refers to Epaphras as my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. And that tells us something important about this man who was called to shepherd the church in Colossae and who, we're told, worked very hard for him. Now, does it tell us that Epaphras was now actually in prison, in chains with the Apostle Paul? Not likely, right? We kind of covered that back in verse 10 when we talked about Aristarchus, right, who Paul said was his fellow prisoner. But what is conveyed by this language in Philemon 23 is a bit different. It is heightening this for us. Epaphras is a prisoner in Christ Jesus. And what this is conveying to us is he is fully devoted to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is particularly committed, no matter the cost, on behalf of the members of the Colossians church. And now in verse 12, he elevates this point. Epaphras is referred to as a servant, the Greek word doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, throughout Scripture, Paul uses this description only of three men, only of three men, that they are actually a slave of Christ Jesus. He uses it of himself as an apostle, and then he uses it of two pastors, Timothy and Epaphras. And so, he's distinguishing him a bit. The call to Christian ministry in that role as an elder is different for Epaphras. But what I don't want us to miss here is that it applies to every Christian. And it's not just for pastors. Everyone who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who rests in the assurance that Jesus alone has done everything needed to save us by his perfectly obedient life, by his substitutionary death on the cross, by his resurrection, by his ascension to the Father's right hand, everyone who is therefore indwelt by the Holy Spirit and made new by faith in Jesus should remember that we were bought with a price, right? This is that beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. That is something hard for us to grapple with in the West, especially where individualism is such a big deal and our autonomy is such a big deal. But you are not your own, it says, for you were bought with a price. And we must always remember that because that price was the greatest act of mercy in all of human history. When God, you know this verse, when God did what he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should never perish but have eternal life. Now, Paul is drawing us back, though, to 
Epaphras in this particular role within the church. He's heightening this role of Epaphras, his responsibility as pastor. William Hendrickson is a commentator. He he, uh, summarizes a whole bunch of scripture, and we'll read what he says to save us a little time. He says, a servant or slave of Christ Jesus is one who has been bought with a price and is therefore owned by his master, on whom he is completely dependent, to whom he owes undivided allegiance, and to whom he ministers with gladness of heart, in newness of spirit, and in the enjoyment of perfect freedom, receiving from him a glorious reward. Again, it applies to pastors like Epaphras. It applies to all of us as well. And this freedom that which he refers is not freedom the way that our pagan world would describe it. Like we love freedom, but Christ gives us freedom in a particular way. Romans 6 says, but now that you have been set free from sin. Right? That's our freedom. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're set free. We're able to obey. By the work of the Spirit, we want to obey. We have instead become slaves of God. And the fruit you get from this leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this is what is behind this. And every man, woman, and child will someday have to give an account to Jesus Christ, the righteous and holy judge. But for Epaphras, the stakes are raised a little bit higher, given his calling as a pastor. Because like all pastors, all elders today, he faced the, the reality of accountability for the members of the church that he oversaw. It is this accountability, then, to the Almighty God that would inspire someone like him to make this journey from Colossae all the way to Rome to see Paul in prison, to then come back to confront false teachers and the false teaching in the church and to do what Paul has commanded, which is to teach and to warn. Hebrews 13, 17 provides instruction to the church when it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The dreadful verse for anyone who aspires to be an elder. Says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see, for Epaphras, for any man today called as an elder or pastor, it's that reality that you will have to give an account to Christ Jesus for the souls of the members of your congregation that has to be at the forefront of your mind. And so what does Epaphras do while he's away? That's the thing we need to look at. What does he do when he's away from the members of this church that he serves that he must give an account for? And our text says, he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now this gives us some great characteristics of prayer that we should apply to all of our lives. They should guide us as we mature in our ability to communicate with God and walk with him. Let me give you four characteristics that come out of this text. His prayer is continuous and frequent. It is made with great effort. It is intercessory. It is on behalf of somebody else. And it is specific and it is purposeful. It's not generic, right? It's not the prayer of God be with them. It is specific. So let's take these in step. His prayer was continuous. His prayer was frequent. The Puritan Matthew Henry from the 17th century has this great quote. He said, you may as soon find a living man without breath as a living saint without prayer. And that is true. You are more likely to find someone who is alive but does not need to breathe, which is an impossibility, as you are to find someone who walks with Christ, saved by his blood, as a Christian who never prays. That's an impossibility. We are told in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, short verse, we all know it, pray without ceasing, right? Pray without ceasing. But in Colossians, the letter, chapter 4, verse 2, it tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer, right? Never wavering, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then we see the example that the apostles gave us, the disciples, right? They walked with Jesus. They watched all of his miracles. Today, we want miracles, right? We watched all these miracles. They listened to his teaching. They watched him walk with God. And what did they ask him? This is uh, Luke 11, 1. What did they ask him? They didn't ask him how to do miracles. They watched the master himself of prayer, praying to the Father. 
And it says, one of his disciples then said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. It is often neglected, but it's something we must do, that we should want to do. Right? And as the shepherd of the flock, the man who was called to give an account for the souls entrusted to him, Epaphras did just that. He did what Jesus did in the high priestly prayer of John 17. He prayed, and he prayed always, and he prayed continuously, and he prayed frequently, and he prayed for his people. And he did it with our second heading, with great effort. Right? The text says, he was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. I love this word. It's the Greek word agonizomai. It's where we get the word agonize. Right? He agonized on your behalf for, uh, for you. He was interceding for you with great effort. He was like Jacob, wrestling with God, not letting go until God gave him that blessing and moved on. He was like the persistent widow. Right? He was like the persistent widow who would not give up until the judge gave her relief. Her relief. A parable that Jesus told. And Jesus said why. He said he told it to the effect that we ought always to pray and never lose heart. Never give up. It comes with great effort. And we know this because God in his providence sometimes delays his response to us. And we're not to give up. We're to pray. And we're to pray. And we're to pray. And it takes effort. We all know it takes effort. Lock yourself in a room. Say you're going to pray for a set amount of time and see how long it takes before your mind wanders. It takes effort. That, that's, that happens to me. Like I, I was just talking to somebody this week. I write my prayers sometimes to try to force that focus, right? It takes effort. It takes great effort. He agonized over it. Another Puritan, this will be the last Puritan quote today. Anthony Burgess wrote this about prayer. To pray is such a solemn worship of God that it requires the whole man, the intellectual part, our minds, all our judgment, all our creativity, all our memory is to be employed in prayer as also the whole heart, all of our will, every one of our affections, yes, in the whole body also. It takes great effort, struggling in prayer for others. And that should be no burden to us because we want, don't we, every person to be saved, to hear the message of Christ, to repent, to believe in Him, and we pray that way. But we pray for each other that we might all walk in faithfulness, iron sharpening iron, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit as we love each other and we build one another up in the church. All of this is in our prayers. And so we have to question ourselves, always examine ourselves. Do we struggle with all of our might in prayer on behalf of others? That's something that's hard to do. But that is the third aspect of this prayer. It was intercessory. It was prayer on behalf of and for the benefit of someone other than Epaphras. He wasn't praying for them. This is, mimics the Apostle Paul sitting in chains, right? And he's praying for the church. He's praying that they won't be misled, that they'll return to orthodoxy. He's not praying for his release. And here Epaphras is struggling on your behalf. The intercessory prayer. It's what we are called to do throughout Scripture, right? We are told to pray for our enemies. That's a tough one. If we were to catalog how much of your prayer time is spent praying for your enemies and blessing them, I'm guessing most of us would struggle to account for that one. Right? But that's what we're called to do. Pray for those who persecute us. Pray for the, those who persecute the church. We're called to pray for one another in the church, for this is the will of God. It was modeled by Jesus. He prayed for his disciples. It was modeled by the Apostle Paul. In virtually every one of his letters, he wrote as, that he prayed for the churches. And we did this same thing, right? Just a couple weeks ago, we met for our first prayer meeting. We had 50 people gather here to pray, and not a single prayer for us. We followed 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. It's a great example of how to pray not for ourselves, but to pray for others. God gives us this instruction. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. This is a wonderful reminder of how to pray, how to structure your prayers on behalf of others, local and global. It's always a good exercise to once in a while, and it can be convicting, to step back and examine your own prayers 
and ask yourself what percentage of the time I spend in prayer is actually dedicated to praying for others, not myself. It's convicting at times. Now, you see God's will expressed there in 1 Timothy. It's a desire not only that people will be saved, but they will be sanctified. They will come to the knowledge of the truth. And that has been a consistent theme throughout all of Colossians, to grow in knowledge of Christ and his will. And you see it now modeled in Epaphras' prayer. It was very specific. It was very purposeful. Right? Verse 12 says, he's praying that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This would be one that hit him hard, right? And it should hit us hard as well because their time was not different than our time. And many get drawn away by false teachers. Many get drawn away by culture as the winds blow uh, undiscerning Christians around like the wind. And we need to be praying for the same thing, very specific. We live in a world where we're so bombarded by sin and those pushing sin that we become numb to it. We've completely lose sight of its eternally damning effects. And so we overlook it. We must pray in the same way because Scripture warns that there will arise within the church to lead people astray, these false teachers. And they had them in Colossae. We have them today. They declare what is evil to be good and what is good to be evil, such as the name of God is blasphemed and his grace is obscured. What Epaphras is praying for here is doctrinal integrity. That's the fancy word for it. What he's actually praying for is that these Christians would grow, that they would mature in the sound teaching that is found all throughout Scripture, that they would be beholden to God's will, that they would be convicted by God's word, that they would be transformed by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, that they would grow in their faithfulness, in their walk with Jesus Christ, and that most of all, they would not be deceived by the world. It really harkens back to Paul's ministry as he describes it in the first chapter of the letter to Colossians. In verse 28, he says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim to everyone. Doing what? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the journey that we are on. Now, it's not just maturity that he's praying for. He prays also that they will be fully assured in all the will of God. Now, this is a little different than the way we talk about assurance. What he's talking about here is not assurance of salvation, right? That's the way we usually use the word assurance. What he's using this phrase here to mean is that these Christians would be filled to the brim, completely persuaded by the will of God in every aspect of life. It's that they would have knowledge not just of what God has done, right? Not just to point back and say Jesus died on a cross, but knowledge of who God is what his nature is, what his way is with interacting with us, what God loves and what God hates, and that this would fill them. Ultimately, what he's praying is that people would know Jesus Christ intimately through every page of Scripture. It's a comprehensive way of praying, and it represents his concern for his congregation, his desire that these men and women and children will remain true to the confession that they make to follow and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ that they would not be deceived by false teachers or the pressures that come upon them from outside the church. Mostly that they would not be ashamed of the gospel. They would not be ashamed of the gospel and the whole counsel of God, but instead would live it and would speak it because it so fills them, regardless of what people's reactions are. Because we're not called to get people to react. We're called just to obey and to proclaim. And God takes care of the rest. Uh, To the Thessalonians, Paul writes this. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right? That's what's going on here. This is always the pastoral concern. And this is what Epaphras is saying. He's concerned. People can say, yes, I believe Jesus died for me. But then they can deny him by turning away from what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. Forgetting the other side of the coin. That we're called to walk as Jesus walked. To live as Jesus lived. 1 John 2, 6, right? Hold fast to every word of Scripture. It is breathed out by God. It is profitable for us in every way. Hebrews 12 says, Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Right? So we just work towards that, but we work with God, working in us, working within the church, working alongside us. 
Epaphras has demonstrated here his pastoral concern for the members of the church in Colossae by his diligent prayer. But he's not the only pastor that's mentioned in this text. And so we have to move on. We have to turn to Archippus. Because when we look at Archippus, you'll actually see something about the church. Not everything about the church. Like I said, we are scratching the surface, barely, on both pastors and the church. But you see something here. Verse 17 says, And say to Archippus, I'll insert my own words there to make it a little more real because, remember, this is being read to the church to which it's addressed. And you, church, you need to go and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. It's an instruction to the church to tell him. And there's not much said in the Bible about Archippus. There's just one thing clear from this text. He needed a fire lit under him, right? He, he needed the church, the entire church, called to go and give him this encouragement, that's a nice way of putting it, you might say it's a rebuke, to fulfill your ministry that the Lord has given you. But we first need to ask who he is, because it's, it is relevant to this instruction. Paul refers to Archippus again in Philemon 2, and he refers to him there as our fellow soldier. Now, most scholars conclude, and we're not told this for sure, but most scholars conclude that he is likely the son of Philemon in Apphia. And remember, the Colossian church met in the house of Philemon. And it appears then that as a fellow soldier for the gospel and one who sits in Colossae and is called by the church to fulfill the ministry of the Lord, that Archippus is serving as the pastor in the absence of Epaphras. And Paul wrote to encourage pastors from time to time. You can think of the letter he wrote to Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he writes, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Right? And in purity. Now, the kids in Awana memorize that verse and take great enthusiasm with it, and I hate to like, burst the bubble, but Timothy was between 34 and 39 years old when Paul wrote that, verse, that letter to him. So he's a young man. He's a young man. Archippus, being the son of Philemon, was probably a young man like Timothy. But we must ask from our text, what is this ministry? What is this ministry that he's to fulfill, and why did Paul choose to have the church make this command to him, as opposed to doing it himself? Paul could have just written, he does it everywhere else, he could have just wrote, Archippus, fulfill the ministry given to you. I've just given you a list of seven or eight other men who are doing these powerful things. Tychicus is going to carry this letter all across half the known world in great danger. Look at what they all do. You get on board. Fulfill your ministry. But Paul doesn't do that. He tells the church to do it. So first, let's look at the ministry. The word that Paul chooses often has the connotation of preaching and teaching throughout Scripture. The structure of the verse is actually very similar to 2 Timothy 4.5. Of Archippus, he writes, fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. To Timothy, he writes, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. They're just kind of flipped a little bit. And in Timothy's case, of course, we get that descriptor already. It's clear what his ministry was. He was an evangelist or a gospel preacher, right? He was pastoring the church in Ephesus. We know this while Paul was in prison again. And Paul had laid out more clearly in the verses right before that what that looked like. He said to him, preach the word. That's it. Your stories might be funny and they might be enduring to people, but you need to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That is what he is called to do. Now in Colossae as well, someone needed to fill that role. That is why the church gathers. It was normally Epaphras, but we know he was with Paul in Rome at this time. So Archippus was most likely the interim pastor, you could say, shepherding the flock there. And he's a young man. And this is no easy task, particularly for a young man. How does he stand confident? Remember where their church is at. They've got the pressures of the culture around them, and it's a very pagan culture. The Christian faith is new in this place. It stands opposed to the world. He's in that culture, and he has false teachers in the church. Trying to lead people astray. So how does he stand confident in bringing the full counsel of God to bear when to do so will mean rebuking, correcting error, exhorting people, calling them to obedience to the word when it's countercultural? And when he's got other men teaching the church that he's wrong, that there's some better way, right? 
At social media, he didn't have to contend with that or YouTube uh, that, that we can go to and it fills people with all kinds of good things and bad things. But what he did have is false teachers, and they were in the church. We know that because that's the whole reason this letter is written to the Christians in Colossae. And that means that there would be those sitting there who will absolutely hate the word of God. Don't preach that. And there would be others that would love it, and that would be changed, that would be convicted, that would walk closer with God. And Archippus needed encouragement. And this is a really interesting way to do it. It's a very interesting way. It's a clever way. Because it challenges the very church of Christ to consider why it gathers and what they're listening to. Because in this instruction, he's having the church declare, give this encouragement, acknowledging both the ministry and as hard as it might be at times to listen to, acknowledge that indeed it comes from the very word of God that he speaks because the Lord has called him. And so Paul doesn't directly instruct Archippus to fulfill his preaching ministry. He tells the church to do it. Now, it's just fascinating. We could spend more time on this, but what you want to see here is that Archippus had accountability to the church, right? Not out of compulsion, not out of compulsion, but at their will and their encouragement. And so the church is then called upon to be faithful to the Word of God, to be faithful to Christ, and to call on their pastor to be faithful in preaching the Word. Now, he has accountability elsewhere. We've already covered that, right? He has also has accountability to Christ Jesus because that is where his authority ultimately comes from and that is who will hold him accountable. And we know James 3.3 tells us that teachers, pre- preachers, they will be held very accountable for every word that comes out of their mouth in a different way. But it is interesting to look at this, that God's calling, his command requires all people, both sides of the equation. And God designed his church this way. He he designed it this way. He didn't give us a variety of options to choose from. He didn't say, look, uh, go out to a world corrupted by sin, find a secular institution you like or a corporation, and then try to model the church after that and see how that works. No, he, he gave us this, and it requires everybody. It's amazing. It is the body of Christ over which he serves as head. He's the great shepherd, right? Colossians 1.18. What this is pointing us to as a church, and all of us fit this, right? I I devour sermons myself. I love to listen to them. Every Christian should be very hungry to grow. It should actually be, even though sometimes it's hard to hear it because it pricks our heart, we should be desiring to be protected by the warnings of Scripture against sin and against what the world is throwing at us. We should be looking to understand God's ways and to know him intimately and seek to be guided down the narrow path without straying off and falling into a ditch, right? And so for this, we have to demand of our pastors is what this is telling us. Anyone who fills a pulpit, whether it's temporary, whether it's permanent, that we need to demand of them. That they faithfully preach the full counsel of God. We're going to read 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, one more time, then we'll move on. This is what you must demand. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That runs so counter to what the modern world wants. They don't want to have the word of God reproving, rebuking, correcting, but rather just give me the encouraging parts. Tell me I'm good where I'm at. But it says the time is coming. I would argue the time is now. It was then in the first century and it's still now. When people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions. You're good where you're at. Follow the world. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, it is only through the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that accompanies that word that we find ourselves drawn near to Jesus Christ, even when we're challenged by what Scripture says. And for this, every one of us has to check ourselves. We have to remember that if we are having issues with the Bible, it's not God that's that's the problem. It's not God that's the problem for speaking things that aren't culturally acceptable today. It's our hearts. And it's how we've allowed other influences to creep in, sometimes without even knowing it. But we can fix that. And we can fix it quickly through prayer, through diligent study of the Word of God. And for that, we'll turn to our next topic. We can turn to His Word. 
That's the second point that comes up in these verses, the primacy of the word of God, verses 15 and 16. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, just as a reminder, taking us back to probably the first sermon in Colossians, Laodicea is just 12 miles west of Colossae. Hierapolis is 15 miles away. So they're all kind of part of the same community in a way. So that is why it says that Epaphras worked hard on their behalf as well. He was sort of serving these different churches at different times. Now, we don't have time for this, but I'll just plant this in your mind. You can look later. What happens to the church in Laodicea? For that, you can turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. And remember that that's written just 30 years after the letter to Colossae, right? And I'll give you the big hint. They go lukewarm. They're trying to balance between the two things. They go lukewarm, and God warns them severely. But that is for a different sermon on a different day. That's just a reminder to you that Laodicea is mentioned elsewhere. Now, we're not going to dwell long on this passage. We can't. But it points to the centrality of Scripture in the life of the church and in the life of every Christian. Just to hit a couple things that are raised here, the church in the house of Nympha, remember that churches did not meet in buildings like we have today. That did not actually start until the second half of the third century. Up to that point, churches met in houses. Big cities had lots of houses, like Rome and Jerusalem. Smaller cities often had one house. And we don't know if Nympha's house was in Hierapolis, that's what some people think, because suddenly that city drops out of the list here, or whether it was the house, one of the churches in Laodicea, which is less likely, but it doesn't matter, I guess is what I would say to that. It's just a, one of those things people like to write about, but we don't know. In any event, what I want you to see is the importance of Scripture in worship. The fact that though this letter, and all the letters, Inspired by the Holy Spirit, they were written to address particular circumstances in a very specific church. They were also written for the universal church, for all time, right? You will hear them referred to as circular letters. And it just means that they circulated among the churches for the instruction of the people in the will of God. You see Peter referring to this in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 through 18. He writes this just before He and Paul would be martyred sometime in the mid-60s. And he writes this, Count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. We can all agree on that, right? I think so. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That is the biggest effort today, if you follow certain movements with certain sin patterns, how to reinterpret, twist scripture. So you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing this is going to happen, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, or lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the scriptures, and they were already circulating at this time, by the mid-60s. It is the scriptures that God has revealed himself and his ways to humankind. And it is the scripture which is used to sanctify us by the work of the Spirit, right? This is why Jesus prayed, John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, right? It is the scriptures that guide us. They protect us from error. They help us grow in grace and knowledge, the very thing that we're praying for. And this letter... The letter to the Colossians, which promotes the supremacy of Jesus Christ as Lord of everything, is not just to be read in Colossae. It's to be shared. It's to be read among the other churches for all time, first with the Laodiceans. Now, the big question obviously comes up in the second half of verse 16, right? See also that you read the letter from Laodicea. Well, turn with me in your Bibles now, if you would, to Laodiceans. You know that that's not there, right? So is this... A lost letter. Is it a lost letter of Paul? The most plausible answer, the one that the majority of biblical scholars agree on, is no, it's not lost at all. This is referring to another circular letter of the church. The letter is almost certainly the letter to the Ephesians. And Tychicus would pick that letter up on his journey as he worked through the churches, and that letter would be given to the Laodiceans, and ultimately it was a command 
to send that letter from the Laodiceans to the Colossians. You are going to exchange letters. Now, much more could be said explaining how to defend that, but we're not going to do that this morning. That, that can be your teaser to come see me if you want to know. The Christian church, here's the key. The Christian church and our faith in Jesus Christ is not founded on blind faith. It's not founded on emotionalism. It's not founded on how we feel. It's not founded on drumming up something through music. Here we see that the earliest churches shared scripture. They were eagerly sharing and devouring the word of God because that is how we know Christ. And now we have to bring the study of this letter to a close. So let's close with Paul's message of grace. Paul's message of grace to the churches. Verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, Paul dictated his letters. You see that referred to elsewhere. It was very common practice. He typically dictated a letter to his secretary, but he would sign them. He would write the the greeting, the closing, in his own hand so that people would know that they were authentic. In 2 Thessalonians 2.2, you see already a reference that there were those circulating counterfeit letters among the churches, writing as if they were Paul under his name. So this became the mark of how to know that Paul truly wrote the letter. You see it referenced in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, where he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Most would think he writes quite large. There's some textual evidence that Paul probably had some problems with his eyesight. So it's generally viewed. We don't have any of these anymore. But that is how he authenticated his letters. And he calls on them to remember his chains. It's kind of hard to forget that. But I think he does this both for an encouragement and as a prayer request. The prayer request is quite obvious. Remember my chains. He's already asked them to pray for him. He is in a Roman prison and he does not know if and when he will get out. But he indicates elsewhere that he is pretty confident that he will. But remember my chains. I think he also does this though. But as I have written to you about the supremacy of Christ, the power of God, his saving work, all of these characteristics, sins you should put away, traits you should put on, and how he follows Christ, it's an encouragement to remain faithful always, no matter what, because we can't see the consequences of our own suffering in this life. We may have the joy that sells elsewhere, hard to use that term, but the joy of suffering in this life for Christ. And that will be to achieve his greater purpose. One of the traps that we fall into in this life is we are always trying to interpret the events of our lives, especially the bad ones, in the now, in our own sphere of influence. What does this mean? I suffered for this reason. And God is much bigger than that. We really can't see. Paul couldn't see. We can only see looking back that it had a great impact as the gospel advanced through the Praetorian Guard and through the household of Caesar. Now, let's spend the remaining time on the important part. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Paul opens this letter with a message of grace. Paul closes this letter with a message of grace. And that is so important. He closes most of them this way, but we shouldn't overlook how important it is. Words matter, so we have to define it, right? And it is not grace the way that we use the term today. That's what confuses people. We often say to give someone grace. What we usually mean by that term, or at least the way I hear it used, is overlook their faults. Overlook or ignore what they're doing. Overlook or ignore... Their sin, do what you can. Give them grace, meaning don't offend them. Don't offend them by calling upon them to change. Let them alone. And that's our definition of grace. Give them grace, let them do what they want. Sort of, that's grace. But that's not God's definition of grace. The grace of God is nothing like that. Think about the term from Ephesians 2. It is by God's grace that we are saved. By God's grace that we are saved. Well, what does that grace look like? It was the propitiatory sacrifice of his son. Another big word, 
What that means is it was the appeasement of God's wrath against our sins by Jesus, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. Grace does not overlook sin. God cannot do that. Grace is that he punishes someone else for our sins and calls on us to repent, to turn from sin, and to trust in God. And we have to know Jesus Christ. And that kind of sums up the main points of the letter when you think about the false teachers. The false teachers had come proclaiming that there was a better way to salvation. That there was a better way to know God. And that it was greater than knowing Jesus. This Gnostic idea of a greater spirituality. But Colossians says something different. In verse, chapter 118, it says, In everything, Jesus Christ must be preeminent. In every aspect of life, he must take first place. Right? On a sunny Sunday morning, he takes first place, no matter what we want to do otherwise. Same thing on a snowy or rainy one. It tells us that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There is nothing more than you can know about God than is revealed in Jesus Christ. That in Christ alone are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's no place else you need to seek for these things other than to know Jesus Christ. The false teachers promoted works. This was their legalistic tendency. Works, doing things and not doing things, right? And those were the things that were going to lead you on this path to holiness. But what God says is these practices have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. They look good to people because they look religious, but they are of no value. They are of no value in stopping sin. They're of no value in changing hearts. They're of no value in stopping rebellion against God. They don't work. We can do all kinds of things. We can say all kinds of things to make us feel religious, but there's only one way of salvation, only one way to be reconciled to God, no longer his enemies, but adopted as his children and Colossians 1.22 tells us that it is Jesus who reconciled us by his death. That's what it took in order to present us holy, blameless, above reproach before him. That is grace. He went to the cross for us. As Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a work of God It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast because we are his worksmanship. See, grace is extended to us by the mercy of God, by the love of God. It is an extension of his mercy. It is the answer to the most perplexing problem we have with God, that God must punish sin, every sin. Not just the ones we think are big sins. No, every transgression against his law, his nature, his way. God must punish. And he says, I will by no means, right, overlook these wicked ways. He must punish sin. But he offers grace. Only grace will suffice. And that grace required the punishment that we deserve to be satisfied by another. Not just overlooked. For that would make God both unjust and unholy. If he overlooks sin, he is no longer God. He is no longer holy. He is no longer just. But that's not what he offers. He offers the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, who did what we could not do, who lived a perfectly obedient life. And it was him that paid the penalty, God pouring out the wrath that we deserved on his only Son, And our salvation by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is God's extension of grace to his people. Jesus is God's gift of grace. God gave his son. He gave him so that whoever believes in him, whoever follows him, whoever trusts in him, should never perish but have eternal life. And if we are partakers of this grace through faith, it is grace that required the death Never lose sight of that. The grace that required the death of another, the death of the Son of God, then we must do as Colossians says. We must seek to live lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And whether it's word or deed, 
We are called to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Jesus calls all people, every person to repent and believe, to know Jesus intimately, not just what He has done, but who He is. And for that, He's given us everything we need. He has granted us His Word. He has given us His church. He's given us pastors, elders, deacons, and most importantly, each other. Iron sharpening iron. Celebrating with each other and mourning with each other. It is indeed grace that leads to life. And it is freely granted to all who will turn and follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, It is hard for us to comprehend the great love which you have for us. That while we were still sinners, you sent your Son, an act of mercy, an act of love. And that you extend grace to us, giving us the opposite of what we deserve by pouring out the punishment that we earned on a substitute, the greatest substitute the perfect Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we worship you and we worship him today as our risen Lord, as the one that we anxiously await will return in power and glory to judge the living and the dead, to bring us home. Lord, we pray that the lessons learned throughout the letter of Colossians will stick with us, will resonate in our hearts, will be used by the Spirit to conform us to the image of your Son. And as we move next week to a new book with new lessons for us, that these wouldn't be lost, but that they would be life-transforming, that we would see the beauty of Christ, that we would look to him as Lord of all, that we would see his supremacy in all things, that we would be able to then demonstrate that as we walk in wisdom toward those who are not part of your church or who have strayed away that our speech may be seasoned with the salt of the gospel, that we might be approaching people with wisdom and with love and have the courage and the boldness to speak truth. Would we pray for those who could not be with us here today. We pray that they would be touched by the love of Christ and that you would work within them to build their love for Christ. That They would be called to join with your people. Lord, we pray for the lost world around us that you might use each and every one of us as a shining light, that they might see us and how we interact with one another as the example, wondering why do these people who are so different love each other so much that we might point to the fact that it is because we have been extended your grace, your love, and your mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord and in whose name we pray, amen.